Welcome to the National Primary Care Origins podcast series. This podcast is one of several created to promote curiosity and interest among the healthcare professionals, advocates, and partners who value the role of primary care and its contributions to better health outcomes and rewarding careers in medicine. These podcasts will be released in conjunction with Connecticut AHEC's annual primary care celebration. We invite you to listen to our diverse guests as they share their origins and their thoughts about primary care. So sit back and enjoy listening to their journey and observations. Welcome back, listeners, to Urban Service Talks. My name is Nisi Brooks. I use she, her, hers pronouns, and I'm a 2022 graduate of the School of Nursing at the University of Connecticut in Stores, Connecticut. I'm part of UST AHEC Scholars Program Cohort 14, and I'll be co-hosting today with Sarah. Thanks so much, and looking forward to co-hosting with you again. My name is Sarah Schulwolf. I also use she, her, her pronouns. I am a third-year medical student at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine, also a member of UST AHEC Cohort 14. For this episode, we are super excited to be joined by two amazing primary care physicians, Dr. Gould and Dr. Alerte. To set a little background, for many of us, primary care was likely our first point of contact with the healthcare system. Whether we have fond memories of visiting our childhood pediatrician and collecting stickers or recollections of a home care professional visiting a relative in need in our home, it's clear that primary care providers are directly at the interface of healthcare and community. Far from remaining stagnant, this integral specialty has proved adaptable and able to evolve with the times. Today's primary care physicians may practice very differently from those 50 years ago, and the providers of the future may be far removed from both. To discuss the changing landscape of primary care, on this episode, we're joined by two amazing primary care physicians, Dr. Bruce Gould and Dr. Anton Alerte. Dr. Gould is the founding director of Connecticut AHEC, a position that he held for 25 years. He has served as the medical director of the Hartford Department of Health and Human Services. Dr. Gould is the founder of and advisor to the Mobile Free Migrant Farm Workers Clinic, which has served Connecticut's migrant farm worker population since 1998. After more than 40 years of dedicated work, he is retiring from his positions as professor and associate dean of primary care at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine. Dr. Alerte is an associate professor of pediatrics and co-director of the clinical suite courses at UConn Health. He received his medical degree from the University of Connecticut School of Medicine and has been in practice for more than 20 years. He is the incoming Associate Dean of Primary Care at UConn School of Medicine. In this conversation, as we celebrate the passing of the torch between these two extraordinary physicians, we hope to reflect on what makes primary care unique, how the field has adapted to various challenges, and what lessons Dr. Gould and Dr. Alerte hope to impart on the providers of tomorrow. So first off, thank you guys so much for joining us for this conversation. I really want to explore the expertise that you have both gained in primary care as a field. We wanted to start out by talking about the past, present, and future of primary care. Dr. Gould, we can start with you. So what was the overall like general perception of primary care when you were starting out medicine? And how do you think that that outside perception of primary care has maybe changed a little bit since then? Well, I think primary care in, in many ways, way back when I started, I started medical school in 1975, somewhat different era. In many ways, primary care was the same. And in many ways, it's very different now. Obviously, technology has changed. Connectivity has changed. Access to information has changed. It's all gotten so much easier, at least as far as being able to carry pretty much all of medical knowledge on this versus having to, you know, run to the library or or make things up as you went along. I think the issues around what we do as primary care physicians, whether that's in family medicine, I'm an internist, so in general internal medicine or in general pediatric, that interaction with the patient, with families and with communities has largely, I believe, stayed the same. And in some ways, at least more recently, due to really more attention paid to the social context of care and equity, those interactions have even gathered perhaps more meaning than when I started. When I started in medicine, I really did try on different careers. I tried very hard to find a specialty because the expectation, perhaps the same as many of you face today, is that somehow you're going to specialize in something. 
um, rather than go into primary care. And I tried to look at different areas of medicine. And what I found was I was really interested in everything. To be honest, I think the issues around continuity of care and the relationships that you develop with individuals, with families across the lifespan of an individual. And then if you are of that ilk, and I, I think I was raised that way, to actually look at where people live and how they live and the challenges that uh, they face, and then being able, hopefully, to do some good in trying to look at some of those root causes and perhaps change things a little bit along the way. I definitely appreciate the fact that we're trending in a way that we acknowledge so much more of what makes a person a person, their circumstances, where they're living, what they have access to in terms of how we care for people moving forward. I think that's really important in that way. And Dr. Alerte, I want to not undermine how many years you've already been practicing and, and how things have changed. As a physician who isn't retiring yet, what work do you want to see? Like, what improvements do you want to see going forward in your work in primary care? I will echo what Dr. Gould said in terms of a historical perspective, because I've been doing this for 20 years before taking over this mantle. I have seen very much the same changes that he has over the past 20 years. Information, technology, ready access to all sorts of information in the hands of pretty much everyone, so the great equalizer, and still need of some guidance and some context from our perspective as well. In pediatrics, what I've seen specifically, and that's because my chosen field in primary care is that I spend a lot more time talking about kids' self-esteem and their social functioning than I do about their ear infections. Mercifully, luckily, thank you, immunizations, a lot of diseases that used to take up a lot of our time, a lot of our resources, and a lot of our medications are becoming fewer and far between. But in that gap of biomedical illness is the biopsychosocial issues that are just as prevalent and just as powerful and, um, uh, and determine so much of your life's outcomes. So what I want to see is a lot more focus on supporting families, and this goes across the boards, emotional strength building. Because a lot of the things that we do, and I'll make this very short, when we diagnose something, we're only doing kind of part of the job, right? If I diagnose a strep throat, congratulations. Yay, the second bar lit up. But who has to get the prescription? The family. Who has to do the medication? The family. Who has to follow the instructions to the letter, not do it before food or after food? The family. Who has to follow up if the food doesn't get better in three days? The family. Who has to come back and talk to the doctor if the antibiotics don't work or the kid breaks out in a rash? The family. So I find that empowering people um, with the skill set and supporting their health care and strengthening their self-efficacy is probably where we're going to see primary care probably make the biggest strides for all of these things, managing weight, controlling mm -hmm. diet, controlling um, uh, habits and behaviors that are detrimental, smoking, drinking. But those things are not going to be just me for 10 minutes talking about food, but it's going to be them actually being empowered to make those changes for themselves and me being a coach. Both of you talking about what we're hoping to have and what we're focusing on is that education is going to be a big piece of that. You know, myself, I just finished my family medicine clerkship, uh, shout out Asylum Hill, we love you, kind of was struck by when learning from different primary care providers, everyone has a different style and there may be different ways that information gets across. There are many ways to succeed as both clinicians and educators. I'm curious from your perspective, what qualities, if any, do you think are integral to the successful primary care provider? And if it's even possible, how do you teach those qualities? Courage, right? And that sounds, wow, that sounds so very like Star Wars Jedi courage. But you have to, to actually tackle the problems, you have to go into the conversations that most people go, oh, no, 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 we don't talk about that. You got to talk about your weight. I'm not going to try to fat shame you. We're going to need to calculate the BMI. And I know there's a push to like, no, don't tell me my weight. Don't show me my weight. Don't weigh me. But I'm like, no, we have to go into those dark places. We got to talk about your trauma. Sorry. I'm going to try to do it in a kind, supportive manner. But we got to talk about 
this stuff. We got to talk about your family dysfunction. We have to go into those places that even the stethoscope doesn't go. And if you think observing an unclothed body is an invasion of privacy, like we're about to invade a lot of privacy because those already issues mm-hmm. are. Courage needs to be the biggest thing to address the elephants in the room. How many times have we like, oh, I, I didn't ask the question because I didn't feel comfortable? So many times. I was nervous. I just didn't know how to ask the question. Ew, and I got the skeevies. And we back away from the stuff that needs to be kind of addressed gently, not with a baseball bat, not with callous disregard, but with empathy and kindness, courage. Dr. Gould, anything you want to add to that? Absolutely. You need to be courageous on many fronts. I think the other piece probably is humility, being able to come to terms with the fact that no single human being can know everything. Even though many of your patients may come to you expecting that you have the answers for them, to be able to have the discussion that you won't necessarily have the answers, that often, you know, medicine is an inexact science, but that you're there to work with them to find their way to help them along the way, but that uh, really you can't do it for them. They actually are the ones that have to take action. I think, as Anton was saying, We can't change their habits. We can help them better understand what they're doing, how it affects their greater health, and hopefully through literature and everything else, give them Mm -hmm. some ideas of perhaps how to go about living a healthier life, a longer life, improving their well-being, et cetera. The other piece, and maybe that's part of humility as well, is to realize that you will not always be successful. Sometimes the patient will not think that you are successful because you haven't cured them. And to be able to really take a deep breath and not get so caught up in some ways winning, getting the diagnosis, curing the patient, that you can actually be there for that individual long term and make sure that they feel that if they don't do what you have told them or asked them to do, or if they have not gotten better due to what you have prescribed or worked with them on, that you're not angry at them, that you're accepting mm-hmm. of all of our humanity and, and they can come back to see you because more often than not, if they sense from you that their failure is your failure as the physician, they may not come back. That dysfunctional relationship does not do anyone any good. And so it's really a mixture, I think, of courage, humility, and reality. I think that it's incredibly important for us to not always kind of focus on winning when we're talking with our patients, because sometimes you feel like you won when you can, you know, make them them feel worse about the situation that they're in when you're trying to kind of prompt change in them. But if that erodes their trust in medicine, then what was the point? That humility is so important. Humility and courage. That's what Anton was talking about in shaming. Fortunately, a lot of our colleagues, the way we go about talking about prevention is in some ways shaming that patient into change. And there's a very, very fine line. What you need to do is work with the patient. And, you know, we sort of try to teach you some of these skills as far as uh, motivational interviewing and trying to get a sense from the patient's perspective. How do they see that issue? Is it important enough that they want to change, Prochaska, are they ready for change? And if they are, then can we help them move through that cycle of change? And I found that whole system rings true all the time because I've used them pretty much my whole career. I think that needs to not just apply to the physician literally at the end of the visit day, but everyone that they meet on the way in. I used to say this when we did LGBTQI. I'm like, I don't care how I'm a open and affirming you are. The secretary is like questioning someone's pronouns and raising the eyebrow about what they look. We're done. If the nurse is mm-hmm. shaking their head and sucking their teeth when you step on the scale, we're done. You'll never get to know how open and affirming and how empathetic I am because you will be disgusted and turned off by every other part of the team and every other part of the system. My goodwill will be inconsequential. Everyone needs to be open. The secretary who books your appointment, even though you're late, because you get to pick up your kid. All of those things matter and count. That even goes into how we like view our patients, because sometimes 
we might see our patient as being very hard to deal with. And I think that that's something that needs to be done away with. There are so many things that can impact somebody's day that we have no idea have happened to them. Somebody could have got the worst news of their life. We're thinking that this person's just being rude. They don't care about their health. But there's other things that go on in somebody's life. So we really have to take that step back. We really have to. Dr. Alerte, you talked about going to those places that the stethoscope doesn't in particular. I like that metaphor you used. Medical professions, a lot of times we, we are able to kind of be invasive and uh, you know see patients in that more invasive light. And I think that it can be a positive. It really considers the things that impact somebody's health outside of healthcare. So I kind of want to know what innovative ideas you guys have or that you've seen about the role that primary care itself can help to play in addressing social determinants of health in particular. If you'd like to start, Dr. Gould. Again, I'm a QI guy, quality improvement. Many years ago, I wrote the curriculum on CQI for the medical school, and I've been involved pretty much my whole career in various aspects of how do you try to work with each patient to get them to the best health status that's attainable for that individual. And a lot of that has to do with looking at all those challenges, whether it are social, poverty, transportation, what we call social determinants of health. And I would sort of take it a step further and say that we need to in primary care, and we actually have the opportunity in primary care because we see individuals and families across time that we are able to start looking at themes of social determinants that we may be seeing in Mrs. Jones and Mrs. Smith and Mr. Rodriguez. My three next patients all have the same social determinants. And at some point, I sort of have to say, well, hmm, let me take a step back. And with modern technology, I can look at where they live, see if there's a neighborhood or a community issue. And then the issue is, and I'm not trying to turn every clinician whether it's a physician, pharmacist, dentist, or whomever into a social architect, but all of us really for the improvement of outcomes for our patients should be looking at some of the challenges that our patients and the communities we serve are facing. And if time allows, and that's a big issue, but I I know in my career, I've been able to do that. Thank you, UConn, is to look at some of those issues and be able to actually work with other groups, with members of the team in my own practice to make sure, I think as Anton was saying, that from that first phone call or when they walk in the building till they are at home and get a call on the phone, that we all are being active listeners, that we're actually hearing what our patients have to say. And we're also aware of the challenges they're facing and sympathetic to their humanity, that we are also looking at those issues, those root causes, and then figuring out as a practice or as an institution. So we're lucky again at the university that we have this huge monster university behind us. Sometimes pulling them into looking at some of these issues can be uh, very, very difficult. Certainly when I teach some of this stuff, I try to encourage students to be proactive in not only treating the person in front of them or treating the person and their family, but also looking at the community that we serve as a practice, as a healthcare team, or as an institution. Seems like UConn has done you well in that respect. Dr. Alerte, did you have anything to add about, I guess, just the ways that primary care can help in like addressing social determinants of health going forward? I am not the QI guy. I'm the humanist guy. So you get a little bit of both. And and I have to teach that the humanism is not just content that won't be on your boards. So you might as well ignore it. Someone's fighting an uphill battle to to give it some legitimacy. We'll take one kind of scenario as an example. The way we teach the adolescent history is the way police officers do sobriety checks at two in the morning on your roads. We hit you at eight, nine in the morning with a big old flashlight and we ask questions like, are you drinking? Are you smoking? Are you having unprotected sex? Are you not doing well at school? So pretty much tell me, how are you screwing up being a kid? Just come on, cop to it. How are you screwing up? I'll find out. How are you screwing up? And that is probably not the best way. I mean, it does assess the risks. 
drugs, alcohol, authentic sex, and it addresses the risk factors, suicide, homicide, accidents as major causes of morbidity and mortality. But it's not exactly what I'm starting to practice now, which is more strength-based interviewing. Tell me what's important to you. Tell me what you drive in. Tell me what you're really good at. Tell me what your gifts are. All of you who are probably listening to this podcast came to that realization of what your gifts and dreams were. All of you listening to this podcast probably had someone ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And then was supportive when you responded. I don't know why it's my role to go in here and try to tell people, try to get a, get a, get a confession out of them about how they're screwing up. I can see the McDonald's bag in your purse, ma'am. I know you're not keeping to your low salt diet, but we're not going to just sit here and interrogate you right now. What's working for you, ma'am? <laughs> what are you able to do, ma'am? It's probably a better way. Who's important to you? Who's your go-to? Who's your backup? In terms of support systems, who's the matriarch of the family who kind of pretty much is the health motivator and health driver in that household or in that building or in that neighborhood? I have no hard data, so I can't get published. Right? <laughs> and, I can't, and I can't do meaningful use, unlike Dr. Gould. But what I do have is those one-to-one moments of positive affirmation. Again, hidden curriculum, because if I want to motivate them to make those changes that I'm not able to do for them, I can't curate their menu day to day. I want to build that strength for them themselves. And I need to know what their strengths are. And building on that a little bit, when one then zooms out a little bit and looks at the community, social determinants of health is a deficit model. You don't have transportation, you can't get food, et cetera. There's a newer paradigm called vital conditions, which is looking at a community, a neighborhood, and saying, what are the assets that you have and what is missing from the mix in your neighborhood? And that's what we, as a health system, as a government, whatever it is, and and all of these pieces have to be aligned. Can we work on with our patients, with the community, to actually improve so that, again, attaining that optimal health status, you know, sense of well-being is really what we should be aiming for. And I think primary care, at least I have found, is a wonderful platform from which to try and do some of that work because you are working with the people whose lives you've become a part of. And that really gives you a sort of a a toe in the door, if not a foot in the door, to sort of motivate people and to to work with communities, which is, I found, really fun. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to think both about what you were saying, Dr. Alerte, with fundamental shift in medicine of kind of an us versus them or paternalistic idea to more like we're teammates. When you say that about, let me find your strengths, I'm really getting flashbacks like my high school basketball coach. Let's be real. I didn't have that many strengths at basketball, but like he always found them. And that's the thing that inspires you to make a difference. So I really, I love that model. And I think as a a student, that's definitely something I'm going to keep with me uh, going forward. Dr. Gould, you really started to touch on our next topic, which is when we're thinking about creative solutions in primary care and expanding access, something we saw, especially during the pandemic, was the expansion of primary care kind of beyond the physical four walls of the clinic with things like telemedicine and home care. With that, you know, we saw benefits for patients who otherwise, you know, might have trouble getting to their appointments, whether it's lack of transportation or if they're homebound for whatever reason. Programs like Nisi and I participated in and the home and community care where interprofessional teams are coming to the house to do evaluations. When we started this, I had a very vivid flashback of my mother talking about where the doctor would come to the house with his little bag and do house calls. To what extent has this been a reversion? And to what extent do you think this is more of pushing into new territory? I'm not sure it's a full-on reversion. In terms of telemedicine, I think it is probably the biggest step in equal access since Medicaid and Medicare. No, that's a pretty gutsy take. That's a hot take. Uh, I'm going to tell you why I think You heard it here first. The system works really well, asterisk. The medical system works really well 
if you can drive to the doctor's office, you can take time off of work and not have any repercussions. You can take your kid out of school and not have any issues. You can both get there on time for your appointments, maybe a half hour late. You have access to read all of the information that the secretary hands you in a fill-out form before you even meet the nurse, and that you have all your medications, your insurance card is up to date, you have the copay in your pocket, and you have no worries. The system works great for you. If you don't fulfill any of those criteria, good luck. For people who are going into medicine, now this is for the medical school people, everyone else can just breathe a sigh of relief. Back in the day, to get a residency, getting a residency was easy. You just had to have ample access to money to be able to make flight and hotel arrangements to 30 some odd programs and be able to pay rent and sublet your place while you did an away rotation because you want to do ophthalmology or some other competitive residency that requires away rotation. If you can do that, and I'm doing the money sign here, if you can do that, the system works great. No, it doesn't. It, it works for a subset of people under a subset of conditions, and that's not fair. So telemedicine, the phone has allowed us access to cat pictures and libraries across the world. It has allowed you access to healthcare without having to worry about all of those other asterisk, if, then, but statements that we put up and call it a system. So yeah, I really think it's a big deal. And quite frankly, I really think we should be doing more of it as opposed to less of it. This, we need to get back to normal, wasn't great for a lot yeah. of people. Where do you think that resistance is coming in? We want to get back to normal, the good old days. And we have this love affair with all of the good stuff from the good old days. We kind of blithely ignore everything else. A lot of it are, are statutory barriers. I think historically, certainly in medicine, a call was not something we could bill for. If you've ever dealt with a lawyer, you know that call a lawyer every six minutes they are slapping on another $300 an hour and they're rounding up. In medicine, certainly we were not allowed to bill until really the pandemic for time spent on the phone, for other types of time that's spent in trying to work out the issues of a very complex patient or a complex family. And what happened with the pandemic, because we could not see people, they relaxed a lot of those barriers and allowed people and set pricing so that primary care practices and other practices could do telemedicine, could do phones, could do video, et cetera. And what has happened, as Anton said, is that as we went back to face-to-face, -to -face, all of a sudden they're trying to get rid of telemedicine. I can tell you, I'm also the medical director for the Community Health Center Association of Connecticut. And what we found early on is that although it was chaos in the beginning of the pandemic, seeing patients in many ways, especially those patients that Anton mentioned that would never darken our doorstep, we were able to actually get to them, connect them with the system, do the things we could do, and we could try to determine who needed to be seen face-to-face -face and then take the COVID precautions we had to to make that a safe face-to-face -face visit. I think what's going to go on going forward is that people, you know, a little bit of socialism, perhaps, you know, from each according to their talents to each according to their needs, that we're going to find that we have to actually see what people need. And some people are going to need to be seen face to face. You can't do an exam necessarily at this point. That may change via a video feed, but you can, because of advanced technology, get blood pressures and sugars and all sorts of vital signs, do ophthalmologic exams via leaning into the camera, et cetera. So there's really a lot we can do. What that does, as was already discussed, is that for someone that has limited resources, who has, let's say, three kids, who doesn't have a car, and even their bus route, they have to switch three buses and need 10, 15 bucks for all the tokens because they have to drag their kids they just don't show up. And so we really either have to go out to their home, which I've done house calls. We can talk to that more at some point. But also telehealth is just a, an amazing thing that we now have at our fingertips that can really not only create easier access, but create at least some sense of equity. 
and level the playing field a little bit as far as access to care. And remember, COVID did not invent telemedicine. Telemedicine was established when you're in the North Dakota hills. The nearest pediatric gastroenterologist is a lifetime away. You might as well say they're in Bangladesh. They're that far away. And you could take a whole day and drive and get a hotel room overnight for your appointment, or you could do this online. And that's where it was created, and that's where it cut its teeth. So, yes, I am Captain Urban Life, right? But rural medicine has very similar challenges in terms of access to care. The fine print is really thick for families in the urban centers and out there very far out from major centers as well. This issue of, of equity, it spans so many areas. The patient experience is just one thing that equity can, like in, in different areas, can kind of impact. One thing is like the diversity in terms of actual professions, the actual um, like professions that are represented on a treatment team that can increase the quality of care, especially in these underserved patients who might not have the ability to go to a bunch of different places and, and have appointments with a bunch of different specialists. Even earlier, we were talking about quality of um, like interaction between a patient and the reception or patient and nurse and how that impacts the overall experience. So we know that there's this need for clinicians to be trained in interprofessional collaboration so that we kind of all know who to call. We all know kind of what issues fall under what umbrellas. How have you or how do you plan on facilitating this kind of expertise in today and tomorrow's students? Um, we could start with you again, uh, Dr. Gould. Dr. Yurte and I are both uh, graduates or products of the Bergdorf Health Center. The Bergdorf Health Center was UConn's own outpatient service when it started in 1960s and 70s in the north end of Hartford. Uh, what evolved at the Bergdorf was really team-based care, but it did not evolve intentionally. You know, it's not like we sat down and said, you know, here's a process map of all the things we have to do and how the patient flows through the system. And these are the pieces we need. And the system was just so willing to give us all the different professions that we needed on site. But over the years, in part because we were also a teaching clinic, we had all sorts of different pieces and some of the subspecialties, which what really did evolve was team-based care. What came later, probably in the last 10, 20 years, with patient-centered medical home was sort of codification of that team-based function and then requirements for clinical practices to have everyone working together speaking with each other, and seamless handoffs as patients pass through those systems. You know, medicine has always been and has always needed to be a team sport. It's really only in the last maybe 20 plus years that it's been readily recognized. I think pediatric probably 30 years ago or more, 40 years ago, with patient-centered medical home coined the term especially around kids with complex chronic illnesses that needed all the subspecialists and the primary care folks and OT and PT and speech pathology and all these pieces to actually be reading off the same script and working with one another. What happened probably about 15 years ago is all the subspecialties, at least in medicine, and then later through IPEC, which was all of the different teaching arms of all the different professions, pharmacy, nursing, medicine, dentistry, et cetera, et cetera, actually got together and decided that team-based care had to be something each of us taught. And that's sort of where we're at now, where this is actually being encouraged, where Anton can uh, comment on this, but I know early in my career, it was sort of more the Lone Ranger sort of thing, that everyone was sort of doing their own thing, and if they had to talk to each other, they would pick up the phone. But a lot of times it didn't happen. And you wound up with very disjointed care. And disjointed care is ineffective care and damages the outcome for the patient. But it also tends to be incredibly expensive care. Interprofessional education is something that I think is here to stay. And I think what we're doing certainly through UST and through AHEC is trying to early in your careers as students in your formative years, 
is have you meet everyone on the team and understand their training and what they bring to the table and frankly learn to embrace those colleagues and frankly respect them in a, a very visceral way. I agree. I think AHEC and UST have actually codified everything that the Bergdorf kind of created by necessity or by good fortune, just in time. And, oh my God, you just happen to be here. And wow, when we're able to work together, oh yes, it just works. When I was rolling in here, I think the medical system overemphasized physicians as the generals of the healthcare team. And that's take a negative twist on it, but who gets sued? The secretary? The phlebotomist? Or the doctor for any bad outcome, right? So it's an overemphasis of responsibility, an overemphasis of guilt or glory. Neither of that is completely true. Innovative in this field, in our field, in primary care, with such diffuse resources, right, that may not be in the same building, it's a glorified cardiac ICU. And you're like, huh? Well, in a cardiac ICU, you have nurses, dieticians, um, physiologists, electrophysiologists, physicians, PAs, rehabilitation specialists. And they don't walk around going, I'm a nurse. They're like, I'm a cardiac nurse. Get it straight, right? So they know exactly where their bread is buttered. And social workers, they know exactly where their bread is buttered. And they're there to meet that particular need from that particular patient at their highest level of need. If your heart's not working, we are meeting you at your highest level of need, specifically for that topic. UST AHEC, it's a fellowship. It is meeting patients at their highest level of needs. And it's not just the heart, and it's not just their gut, and it's not just their celiac, it's not just their diabetes. It could be a whole host of things. Everyone needs to be a generalist. You can't say, I'm an inner city nurse and have it mean anything. <laughs> you say, I do everything. I am a nurse, right? I'm a social worker. I am a pediatrician. And in that statement, you're handling everything or have your hands in everything or have access to acknowledge the problems practically anywhere. So you're really good at finding those problems that could be anywhere. And you have so many people from so many different fields. That's a, that's a search party. That is a downright awesome search party. That's my uh, little shtick. I think that's so important. Not only do we all have to be generalists, but with this rise of interprofessional education, we also know that we can rely on each other. If I ever encounter Nisi in the hospital, oh my gosh, she's going to save my butt, I'm sure, more times than I can count. So, <laughs> you know, and I think I can speak for all of us when I say that we are really grateful to have had both of you, Dr. Gould and Dr. Alerte, really kind of pioneering this model for us. We're, we're very fortunate that this is something that's never even been a question in our education and definitely not something we take for granted. Looking to the future, especially at places like UConn, there has been a big push to draw students into primary care. I can think back to when I met my Click preceptor for the first time. Click, for anyone listening that's not familiar, is a longitudinal preceptorship that UConn students do mostly at a primary care site. And my preceptor said in his uh, Dr. Perrin voice, my goal with this is to entice you into primary care. I remember that very specifically. I'm curious from your perspectives, how do you think that's been working? What's going well and what have the challenges been in you know, drawing students into the field? I mean, A to Z, pretty much. Uh, you know, a huge issue clearly is I think economics. The pay scales are different. I think that is changing. I think primary care is coming up and frankly, a lot of sort of cost controls within uh, the medical professions and the greater healthcare system led by CMS, the Center for Medicare, Medicaid Services, you know, Medicare tends to be the bellwether that sets the pace and everyone else, all the private insurance companies tend to jump on board is, you know, again, focusing on primary care. In my role at the Community Health Center Association, I was part of a federal grant, Transforming Clinical Practices Initiative, which was about promoting across the spectrum. It's not just for physicians. It's actually going to be used at the University of Connecticut across undergraduate and all graduate schools to train us about how to speak with our students. But we're also going to have in the medical school fellows, residents, 
and students also do the training so that they understand what a healthy career conversation is about. It's a complex piece. There's economics involved. Some students come in wanting to be a cardiologist or whatever. They had an experience, an oncologist, their mom, dad had cancer. They had a role model. Part of, I think, our challenge in primary care is to make sure that as students enter first year, certainly in the medical school, but I think across when I talk to the School of Pharmacy or with Deb Chun, who's the Dean of Nursing, it's the same issue across all the schools, that those of us doing generalist practice need to embrace and nurture students that have an interest and really have them understand the full richness of what we do. And frankly, we have to share with them our joy of practice, which I think sometimes drops by the wayside as people get busy. They're more likely to use, do what I call using the student as therapist and say, oh my God, what I've had such a day today, as opposed to once in a while taking a deep breath and saying, I really love what I do. And I can honestly say, I've been doing this since 1975, that I still love what I do. And frankly, what I love the most is the patients that I've met, families that I've become involved with on a long-term basis, who have invited me into their homes. And frankly, even though I left the Bergdorf, what, in 2016, some of my patients are still calling me. And I have to remind them, I'm no longer your doctor. I'm just a friend with a lot of medical knowledge. And that free advice is worth what you pay for. So, you know, those are some of the issues around, I think, getting students into primary care and through the gauntlet of uh, healthcare education, still with that sort of fire in their belly. I can definitely relate to the um, expressing an interest in primary care and have mentors try and gently or not so gently shoot it down, which is really unfortunate. Um, but I think what you said, it really speaks to the importance of role models. And we're certainly lucky that we have you as role models, as well as, you know, a whole host of awesome faculty at UConn that really demonstrate, you know, the joy and fulfillment they get from their practices. Here's hoping that there will be more primary care physicians and practitioners and providers to become more role models. Dr. Alerte, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Before I took on this role, even in the interim position, I mean, like this was my bailiwick. I was mentoring students in pediatrics, but everyone who came to the Bergdorf was interested in something or they were still trying to figure it out. And I've done the pep talk to people who want to be emergency medicine doctors, but got a lot of grief and blowback from people saying it's not real medicine. It's just triage. And I have encouraged someone who wants to do orthopedic surgery. And I was like, this is so exciting because kids have bones too. Aren't you lucky? (laughs) Um, Right? So you have to role model the supportive behavior for every field. Now I think of the bailiwick of defending primary care from the slings and the arrows. I'm not smart enough to pick out someone's career. It's so multifaceted. I don't arrange marriages. I don't, I'm not in <laughs> harmony. I don't pick out your car for you. I'll give you advice. I'm not going to tell you where to live, what kind of house you want to get, what kind of flowers you want to have in your front yard. That's a you decision. What mm-hmm. I will do is remind you of the skills that you have that might really do well with primary care. Adaptability, right? So we need to kind of think about ourselves, like what makes a really great primary care physician? And you've kind of heard it already open-mindedness, the systems approach, the lifelong approach, I'm a meeting a patient where they are, the I am ready for everything, I am the MacGyver. So you have to be able to kind of embrace that. You can see that in medical students. You can tell which students are kind of like, oh, can roll with the punches, can think on their feet, who cut through all this stuff and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Your grandma's sick? Whoa, time out. We'll deal with your blood pressure later, but how are you doing? We see this. And it's now time to recognize it as opposed to just like, okay, your write-ups are done good. We need to actually nurture it. If you see a six-foot-tall LeBron James slam dunking his age-based peers and you're like, that's someone special, we need to be able to do that for primary care as well. You need to call a spade a spade, know who you're going after, and then actually actively recruit them. I still don't know who's going to walk in here and say, I want to be primary care and I'm serious. And who we're going to get, who converts. And who you might be losing. I need to look at the broad picture and call them out. 
I think part of it is also that as faculty, and this is something we have to talk to the rest of the faculty about as well, is that our job is to help students find their own way and find what will fulfill them for the next 45 years. It's not Darwinian career counseling, which is to reproduce me. It's really student-centered career advising and mentoring. And really, that's what we're trying to teach. And, and thankfully, our dean is fully behind this, beating up a student about their career choice. And it goes both ways. Primary care docs sometimes say, oh, my God, you don't want to be an ex because you're going to waste this part of your talent. Not appropriate. Our job is in a really motivational interviewing sort of format to talk with students and say, what makes you tick? What makes you happy? facilitate. And I have handed students off to colleagues in ENT and anesthesia and other places without prejudice, per se, because that student has to find what's going to make them happy, not what's going to make Dr. Gould happy. I mean, my much less eloquent observation is that I see a lot of people say like primary care isn't one of the fun professions to get into. But my final clinical rotation was at a couple different um, community health center incorporated locations. I think what's extremely interesting about primary care that you also spoke about, Dr. Gould and Dr. Alerte, you also talked a little bit about this, is how you can see so many people, see so many presentations, you see, you get so much, so many different opportunities for those like one-on-one interactions where you're like sitting down with the patient, you're talking to them, kind of getting to know them, understanding what their strengths are, what are their, what are their focuses, what things are important to them, what do they want to get back to? So you get to see like healthcare from that motivational point of view, instead of just being this, take this medicine and then we'll check on you again in like 15 minutes kind of thing that you see sometimes in hospitals. So it's a a lot more of an intimate experience. I know we're winding down a little bit for our conversation. Uh, so these are going to sound a little bit like final remarks, but we have a, you know, these are the last questions for you both, Dr. Gould. So looking back on your entire career, okay. do you have something that you can pluck out that you are most proud of, or maybe a couple things, a top three, if you will? <laughs> My family, that I was a pretty busy guy. But I still went to the school plays. I was the cub master for five years. I was not the least busy parent. And you can balance these things. You don't have to shortchange your patients. You don't have to shortchange your children or your family or your spouse or anyone else. You know, I was uh, just a very lucky guy in that I came to Hartford in 1988 to the Bergdorf. And six years later, as this associate deanship for primary care was invented, I was asked to do that, but did not give up the Bergdorf. And then out of the associate deanship evolved really a year later, uh, the beginnings of the AHEC system in Connecticut. And so I think I was really fortunate about that. And then just working with underserved populations, that's the way I was brought up. It was to help and to, to care and to serve. And I've been given those opportunities, sometimes having to sneak it in under the the radar a bit. But most of the time, you know, at least once things got started with the support of the university behind me and doing stuff like South Park Inn and the migrant farm worker clinics and, you know, and just things all over the, the state and then being involved, you know, on a national level in certain things as well, because of some of the latitude and freedom I was given to follow those issues and to to help on a more local level. And so coming to Connecticut was a very good thing for me in 1988. Those are some incredible accomplishments to look back on, especially family, because I, I hear so much about how busy, especially being a physician is and how that can impact things beyond keeping that relationship with your family. You were able to, you know, create things that had an impact on a larger scale community. So that's amazing. Dr. Alerte, what are you, you know, most excited to accomplish in this new role, this associate dean position that you're now stepping into? Well, what I'm excited to bring to this job is the stuff that I've been doing for years, kind of in ones and twos on a smaller basis, which is the teaching. 
Um, and my practice has really been around teaching. And I hardly see any patients alone anymore because there's always a student attached to me or a learner attached to me. And I really, really, really do enjoy that. And I try to bring my patients into the space where they are also actively teaching and feel a part of the system of the education. So everyone gets a hand in making the generation a little bit better. I've done this for pediatrics and I can't wait to expand it to a broader audience. I want to bring some of those same elements that I book about bringing to patients to students, finding their strengths, not focusing on their weaknesses, but finding their gifts, finding their goals. Most of the students kind of walked in there and said, I want to be a nurse. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a social worker. That's probably as far as you may have gotten because you were so busy trying to prove to someone that you are going to be a good enough doctor, nurse, or social worker, some admissions committee that you didn't really think about what kind of doctor do I want to be, right? Be, oh, it's another fiery hoop I have to jump through. Soul searching, strength identification, and self-efficacy are not just stuff that we should probably write in wellness. It's not just a cool t-shirt to wear at a pizza party for your patients or something to support in a pamphlet at a, as a handout in the waiting room. That's something that we should all be living. I hope to communicate the patient advocacy stuff, empowerment stuff, and really expand that to also include us. I think that's such an amazing way to look at it. And it's a great way to really wrap up things on today's conversation. Thank you both so much for taking time to dive into the importance of primary care and for being some really great examples of some of the different avenues that you can go within this specialty of primary care. You know, I think a lot of times people see it as limiting and it's not. Primary care itself is an incredibly impactful area to work just off of the sheer volume of encounters that you may have with a patient, which means more chances to make a difference in their life especially ones that are, you know, underserved, vulnerable, rural, like you were talking about, Dr. Alerte. But yeah, thank you again. Yeah, thank you so much. We always um, like to leave our listeners with a couple of thought-provoking questions. So to put it out there for the masses, I would encourage anyone listening to think about how can you challenge or expand the way that you think about primary care? And how can you, in your life right now, be an advocate for interprofessional collaboration and for expanding health access both within the clinic and outside. Huge shout out to the entire team at Urban Service Talks for everything they do to bring this podcast together, a student-organized and student-run podcast. If you want to connect with us more and see some of our uh, prior episodes, feel free to check us out on social media. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Apple Podcasts slash Spotify at Urban Service Talks. We hope you enjoy today's mini podcast and our invited guests. To stay engaged in similar conversations and educational opportunities, join us for the Primary Care Celebration 2022 Primary Care, a Team Sport, sponsored by Connecticut AHEC, UConn Health, and ProHealth Physicians. A schedule of the 2022 sessions can be found at h.uconn.edu slash ct ahec That's h.uconn.edu slash ct dash a h e c under the national primary care celebrations button